0: And up there. I love it. I get to say my son's whole name, Theophilus. It's fab. So, Jesus taken up into heaven. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles that he had chosen. But in a few days you will be baptised with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the dates or times the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria... And to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men, dressed in white, stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Hello everybody. Um, Right, so today I'm going to give the first talk in the new series on the book of Acts and it's called Living the Story. Um, The book of Acts is the second part of a two-volume work written by the author of Luke, and it was written approximately 40 years after Jesus' death. In the Gospel, Luke, who was a travelling companion of the Apostle Paul, tells us of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And in the book of Acts, he continues the stories relating the experiences of the early church. Generally speaking, it could be said that where the Old Testament introduces us to God the Father and the Gospels introduce us to God the Son, the Book of Acts introduces us to the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Now it would be easy for me to start this talk by going into the depth of the text that's just been read. But in the same way, if you arrive at a play at the penultimate act it's very difficult to understand exactly what's going on. If we try and understand the book of Acts without first having a look at it in the narrative of the Bible as a whole, again, we'll find it very difficult to understand what's really going on. So as this talk is the first in the series, I hope to give a broad brushstroke of where the book of Acts fits in the narrative of the Bible as a whole, and introduce the main themes of the book before actually talking about what's going on in the section just read. So here goes, the entire Bible in about five minutes. (laughs) Hope you're sitting comfortably. Act 1, God establishes his kingdom on earth. Psalm 90 verse 2 tells us, before the mountains were brought forth, or even you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. In the opening scene of the Bible, we see, we see God form creation. But God himself was not created in the scene. As we all know, the God we worship has no beginning and will have no end. He has always and will always exist. And he does so in an eternal loving relationship. Each member of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is eternally moving out to serve the other in love. This loving relationship is the essence of the God we worship. Our God is love. And as anyone could tell you who has ever been in love... Love is always reaching out to the object of their affection. It was, as a generous overflow of God's outward-focused, self-giving love, that creation was formed. The story of the Bible at its core is the story of God seeking to bring his loving presence, his kingdom, his rule, and his blessing to mankind, so that it may be on earth as it is in heaven. When God created Adam and Eve, he placed them in his kingdom on earth, Eden, which he created for their pleasure. It was replete with fruit and goodness and had everything within it that they could possibly want. But God didn't just put them there and leave them to it. He hung out with them. Genesis speaks of him walking in the garden in the cool of the day they had the privilege of an intimate, personal relationship with the creator of the universe, the God so full of love that it overflowed. They literally experienced heaven on earth. When God created Adam and Eve, he made them in his image. They were supposed to be his representatives on earth, his vice-regents, and therefore they had an active role to play. They were responsible for continuing the order of creation, growing God's kingdom until it encompassed the entire earth. We see this in Genesis 1.28 when they're called to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. This was their calling, their vocation to extend the borders of Eden, God's kingdom on earth, until it encompassed. Compass the entire world, so that God's loving presence and His blessing would be available to all mankind. unhappily, Genesis three reveals that this was not to be Adam and Eve chose not to live under God's rule and therefore could not remain in his kingdom and in his present. It goes without saying that this has implications not just for Adam and Eve, but all who had yet to share in the privileges of Eden. There endeth Act one. God's covenant with Abraham. Our loving heavenly father's intention was always to restore his relationship with mankind and extend his kingdom and his blessing to all. So in Genesis 12, verses one to three, we witness exactly the same vocation which had been given to Adam and Eve being passed on to Abraham or Abraham as he was then. God tells him, go from your country and your kindred your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God's covenant with Abraham was the, that the land promised to him, Israel, would become God's kingdom on earth, where God would abide with his people again and bring his blessing to all. For their part, Israel, like Adam and Eve before them, were called to extend the borders of the kingdom so that God's loving presence and blessing would be available to all. And actually, for a short time under King Solomon, the the covenant promises looked as if they were going to be fulfilled. God's presence was in the Jerusalem temple, and his blessing was clearly on his people. Israel flourished. Her territory was extended and she had unprecedented riches in her coffers. And people traveled from near and far to hear the wisdom of Solomon. However, yet again, this status of affairs was short-lived. Israel, like Adam and Eve before her, failed to live under God's righteousness, compassion, and justice. And as a result, God's presence left the temple, his blessing was removed, and his kingdom was disintegrated. Once again, God's people were exiled from his kingdom. Act three, the long wait. For close to a thousand years, Israel was without God's presence and his blessing. But during this time, the prophets assured her that God would intervene intervene to save his people, reestablishing his kingdom, his rule, and his blessing on earth. And this time, once and for all. They foretold of the arrival of the priestly Messiah king of Davidic descent, who would build a new temple so that God could again dwell with his people. Israel waited in eager anticipation. Act 4 The Gospels The long awaited Messiah king arrives. 400 years after the last book of the Old Testament was written, Jesus was born. Many false prophets and messiahs had come and gone in recent times as Israel was anticipating an imminent fulfillment of the messianic prophecies. Their expectation was that the prophetic words, repeated by many people over the years, would soon be fulfilled, and that their Redeemer would overthrow the Roman oppressors, and that he would reestablish Israel as his chosen people. As they understood it, the prophecies spoke of a time, as under the reign of King Solomon, when they would again become the major power in the land, the superior nation, God's kingdom on earth. In this cultural context, the Pharisees were determined to learn from Israel's previous mistakes, and they urged the people to adhere to the letter of the law. So Their plan was that if they obeyed all the law that God provided, they would provide a climate in which God's presence would return. As regards their legalistic righteousness, this group of religious extremists saw saw themselves as being without fault. They believed they were doing everything they could to keep themselves pure and holy, studying scripture and separating themselves out from sinners. They particularly made a point of avoiding any contact with unclean Gentiles, forming a wall between themselves and any outsider, and they encouraged the people to do the same. It goes without saying that this attitude did much to deter the growth of the kingdom of God, um, particularly to anybody who was not of the Abrahamic bloodline. So when Jesus burst onto the scene... He deliberately spoke into the rampant messianic expectation. He announced in his inaugural address that this was the year of the Lord's favor, the year that God would restore Israel's fortune. And he proclaimed, The kingdom of God is at hand at the start of his ministry. However, Jesus didn't look anything like the Messiah they had anticipated. He didn't behave in a manner appropriate to a holy man of his time. For example, rather than separating himself out from unclean people within society, that is, those people that society saw as the greater sinners, such as tax collectors, (coughs) prostitutes and Gentiles, that's what would have been expected of any self-respecting rabbi. Instead, he fraternised with them. The Pharisees contended that by hanging out with sinners, a good Jew would be infected with their impurity. However, when Jesus interacted with the outcasts of society, the reverse was palpably true. When he had sat down and had dinner with Matthew, the tax collector, rather than becoming contaminated by Matthew, Matthew was impacted by Jesus' contagious holiness, Wherever Jesus went, whoever he interacted with, he took God's loving presence with him, so that those he encountered were blessed with the generous overflow of God's outward focus, self-giving love, and as a result, they were healed, redeemed, and restored There's a really clear demonstration of this taking place in Luke 8, verses 43 to 48, when the bleeding woman reached out and touched Jesus' robe and instantaneously received healing. You see, Jesus emanated the Holy Spirit. Like the aroma of a scent in the air, wherever he went, the perfume of the Holy Spirit would seep out of Jesus. You see, the kingdom of God, the place where God's loving presence could be encountered, Where sins could be forgiven, where the oppressed could be set free, where hearts could be restored and bodies could be healed, was not to be found in the courts of the religious, but in the presence of Jesus. Jesus himself was the location of the kingdom of God on earth, and every time he freed the captives, gave sight to the blind, or cast out demons, the borders of the kingdom were extended, and more people were able to enjoy his blessing. If I can take you back to Act 1, the very start of this book, God's expressed intention had always been to extend the kingdom to fill the whole earth so that his loving presence, his rule and his blessing would be available to all mankind. And his intention was that mankind, made in his image, would be part of this process. The problem was that no human had been able to do this because they were unable to reflect the outward focus and servant-hearted love of their creator. That is, no human until Jesus. For the first time in the history of the world, when Jesus began his ministry, God's kingdom on earth began to grow. It all looked so promising. That is, it all looked so promising until the very end of the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus is seen exiting the stage well before the end of the play. Like a well-crafted cliffhanger at the end of the chapter, as you would get in any good novel, Luke leaves us with Jesus' ascension, begging the question, what? Why would he do that? And how on earth is the Great Commission ever to be fulfilled now? For the answer to that, you'll need to wait for the next act. Act 5, the book of Acts. We finally arrived at the bit we've been reading. The book of Acts opens with the final scene from the Gospel of Luke, Jesus' ascension. The disciples are gathered around the one man on earth who's been able to personally carry the presence of God's kingdom. I strongly suspect that having having seen his miraculous resurrection and the proof of his identity as the Messiah and their God, the disciples were waking, waiting for him to make the announcement that he, um, sorry, the disciples were waiting for him to announce that he was ready to reveal his identity to the rest of mankind, by marching into Jerusalem and wrestling it from the Roman occupiers. We can only imagine their reaction when he announced that, in fact, it was time for him to leave. Jerusalem wasn't even close to being filled with the kingdom, let alone the rest of the world. How on earth, they must have been wondering, is God's remit to extend the kingdom to all nations going to be fulfilled now? In fact, that is the very question we see them ask in verse 6. Lord, they say, will you at this time restore your kingdom to Israel? Jesus' response to them is that it is not for them to know the times, but he informs them in verse 8. You will receive power from the Holy Spirit who has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I'm going to read verse 8 again, because this sentence is key. It is the moment at which we find out how God's commission, originally handed through to mankind through Adam and Eve, then through Abraham, Solomon, Israel, and Jesus, is finally going to be fulfilled. It says you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus tells them that they are responsible to taking on this challenge, that he's leaving the future of mankind in the hands of a few young men, some of whom are just teenagers. However, this time, Jesus promises it will be different. Because this time, they will receive the power they need to succeed in this venture, where all others but Jesus have failed. The power of the Holy Spirit. It's only through being filled with the Holy Spirit that the disciples were transformed from the timid followers who hid themselves after Jesus' arrest, into the spiritual warriors whose lives have impacted not only the people that they encountered then, but some of us in this building here today. In the Gospel of Luke, we see Jesus inaugurate God's kingdom on earth through his person. But when he sits down at the right hand of the Father, that chapter is finished. In the book of Acts, we watch him continuing to build on the work he has started, but this time from heaven by his spirit in the heart of all believers. These disciples were already believers before they received the power Jesus was speaking about but it was only the infilling of the Spirit that transformed them from the very ordinary human beings to the conduits of the kingdom of God. Once filled with the Spirit, reminiscent of the incident of the bleeding woman touching Jesus' robe and being healed through the contagious holiness of the Spirit within him, we see God was doing extraordinary miracles through the disciples. In Acts 19, verses 11 and 12, we're told, That even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched the skin of the once murderous Apostle Paul were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and evil spirits came out of them. For them, fulfilling their mission wasn't a matter of learning tracts or of giving good exegetical answers to questions. It was a matter of carrying the kingdom into any situation they found themselves in and allowing the spirit to do the rest. Because when they walked into Rome, the aroma of Christ wafted in with them. The book of Acts is the penultimate chapter in this story. The last chapter has yet to be written. When it is written, it will contain the stories of spirit-filled men and women who have chosen to take on the baton and run the race set before every believer, to reach out to every nation until the kingdom of God covers the whole earth. This is a baton that's been handed down, first by the disciples and the early church, and then from generation to generation. And this relay race will not finish until the second coming of Christ, the time when it finally will be on earth as it is in heaven. The Bible is clear when it teaches that the same power made available to the disciples is available to all believers, And that this power is given for the express purpose of enabling believers to fulfill the call on their lives given to them by God. Their vocation to complete the Great Commission. Throughout history, there have been men and women who have followed the example of Jesus and the apostles and have had the same impact. Let me tell you about just two The first one I want to tell you about is Smith Wigglesworth, who famously once sat on a train, and without saying a word, whenever people entered into the carriage he was sitting in, they fell on their knees and cried out to God for forgiveness, because he hosted the Holy Spirit. Similarly, Charles Finney walked into a factory, and the presence of God was so strong on him that again, without even saying a word, people dropped on their knees and cried out for forgiveness. You and I may not walk in the same anointing as the disciples, all those men. But when any believer carries the spirit, they change the environment they walk into, whether they realize it or not. And they have everything they need to fulfill the commission given to them by God and handed on to them by the early church. Left to our own devices, all we have is our own striving, which can leave us feeling drained and fruitless. Not all of us, after all, is an evangelist. But the Book of Acts tells us that, equipped with the Spirit, each of us, no matter what our natural gifting, has everything we need to take the kingdom of God to a lost and hurting world, and that participating in this commission is what we are made for, and it will what it is what will bring us and those we encounter life in all its fullness. This, I believe is the fundamental lesson of the challenging and impelling book of Acts. I don't know about you, um, but I really believe what I've just said. I've read the Bible a few times and I've studied theology and I can't make it say anything different. But it's quite some challenge. It's quite a strange concept to think... I don't have to do anything or earn anything. I can just ask God, and he will put his spirit within me, and that spirit will reach out to all those I encounter. To be honest, if, if you said to me, I had to do something, you know, if you really want to be filled with the presence of God, you're going to have to earn it, Jane. You're going to have to climb to the top of a really tall mountain and then walk across a, a rope across a the grate. Then I'd think, well, maybe then I've earned it, and that'll be okay. But actually, what the Bible tells us is the only thing we have to do is ask. If you're a believer and you ask, you can be filled with the presence of God. And that means that wherever you go, you take God's presence. And in that way, why wouldn't the kingdom grow? Because it's such a, a, a simple thing, it's very easy to rush through life and not take the time to take that seriously. So if it's okay with you, I'd like to spend the next few minutes just privately sitting where we are in our seats and take the opportunity to ask God to fill us so that we can be transformed.